Thank you for praying along with me this morning. There's a lot of many things that we prayed for that are very important. And let me just encourage you in the week to come that you continue to bring these things before the Lord. James says that the fervent, you know this, don't you? The fervent, effective prayer of the righteous man avails much. I think that might be the King James Version. When I was a young boy, that's the version we learned in church. And it always sticks right there. Yep. So let's turn now to the Word of God, shall we? And we are reading the last portion of the Gospel of John. We'll begin reading at verse 35, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, verse 51. This is one in a series of sermons that I've been preaching, or we have been preaching, on the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John asks this question, and I want to lay it out before you again. How can you know that Jesus is, in fact, the one you should believe in and follow? It's that simple. And it was written to people who had religious knowledge. In other words, they had some awareness. But they wondered the question, can I really follow this Jesus? How do I know this is the one? How do I know it's not something else? That's why the gospel is before us. And so this morning as we think about discipleship, we will pray that God will answer that question, if not fully, at least in part. Hear the word of God. The next day again... John, that is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of God. May he bless it this morning in its preaching as in your hearing. There was something that I was reminded of this past Tuesday at the Bear Man event. If you were here, you know it was a well-attended event, a couple hundred men eating a lot of protein and carbs, 
and then afterward coming into this room to hear a presentation from Jim the Bear Man. As I was listening to him, it reminded me of something that happened about 15 years ago to me. It was summertime, the middle of the summer, and I was on this large bus traveling with a group of high school students along with a few other chaperones to an amusement park. It was a youth convention, and because it was about 45 minutes from the campus to this amusement park, I got to talk to the man who was sitting next to me, and I asked him, as maybe you ask, my children say I ask a lot of people this, I asked him, what is your story? And so for the next 45 minutes, he told me a story, and I'm going to summarize it for you this way. He was a man who did not grow up in a Christian home, didn't go to church, started working on the docks in New Jersey. The boss hired a new woman in the office. She was cute, he said. And because he wanted to date her, he asked her out, and she said, on one condition, if you will come to church with me, we can go out. So he said that seemed like a simple thing. I went along with church, uh, with her to church. And eventually, not only did I marry this cute woman and she became my wife, but he said, in addition, I came to know Jesus Christ. I became his follower. But now he said, here's the question that I think about a lot. My daughter's also in this bus. She has grown up very differently than I did. She's always had a mom and dad, grew up in a Christian home, She's always gone to church. She's memorized the scriptures. She's gone to youth conventions and youth retreats that talk about Jesus. But he said, I often wonder this question. Does she really believe in Jesus? There came a point on Tuesday night, where Jim asked that question more or less. He asked in a different way than I would ask. There's reasons for that. But he asked that question, and as he asked that question, I thought to myself, you may have been in a different form, and there are reasons why it was in different form. But the question he asked was a good one. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Or to put it slightly differently in the language of this passage, do you see that Jesus is the Messiah? We can talk a lot about the Bible, we can talk about Jesus and all that he is, but there has to come a point at which we simply ask each other, do you believe in Jesus? Do you see what I see? And this morning I'm going to ask you that question. Do you see what I see? And if you're wondering what it means to answer yes This passage describes four ways in which a disciple of Jesus Christ responds to him. And so if you're wondering that question, am I? Do I see him as the Messiah? Here is a fourfold test that you can run in your own heart, in your own mind, as you seek to answer that question. And it parallels these questions. The men who saw Jesus in this passage and heard him... And then responded in what I would describe as faith. Let me ask you this question. What does it mean for you to hear the call of Jesus to see him and respond in faith? The first thing a disciple does, one who hears the call and responds in faith, is found in verse 38 of our passage. 
There it says, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at, at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, look, there is the Lamb of God. And the two disciples who were following John the Baptist all of a sudden leave John the Baptist and they follow Jesus instead. And then Jesus turns to them and he asks, what are you doing? Why are you following? What are you seeking? And did you notice the answer of the two disciples? They do not say, we are seeking to understand who the Lamb of God is who takes away the sin of the world. They do not answer by saying, we want to know who the Messiah is. John the Baptist, our rabbi, said you're the one. No, they answer and they say, We're wondering where you're staying. Now, have you ever had this experience where one of your little ones walks into the kitchen and there are cookie crumbs all over his little face and you ask the question, so what have you been doing? And he says, I was in my room. (laughs) And the answer gives away the heart of the person who answers. There's a similar sort of thing going on here. These disciples are uncertain about who Jesus is. And when they ask where he is staying, Jesus responds by taking them with him to the place where he was staying. And the text notes that it was late in the afternoon, but they spent the rest of the day with him. What did they do? I think it is similar to what we read at the end of the Gospel of Luke that these two disciples were with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and when they came to the place where they were staying, Jesus explained to them who he was. Starting at Moses and the prophets, he unfolded to them all that he was. I believe that's what Jesus is doing here. And these disciples, rather than just asking him, who are you, they want to be where Jesus is to learn from him. And what I would suggest to you first this morning is that if you ask yourself the question, am I a disciple of Jesus Christ, the first way for you to test your own answer to that question is by simply evaluating, do you want to be where Jesus is? Notice that's a different question than asking you, do you know what the Bible says? Have you been to church a lot? Do you live a good moral life? Do other people consider you a Christian? Are you a moral person? Do other people respect you? Did you grow up in America? Those are different questions. Do you want to be with Jesus goes beyond all of those things to ask you the most basic question in life. It's really a question of your first love. Do you want to be with the one who matters most to you? I often think to myself, it is far easier to be an observer than to be a believer. It is much easier to say than to follow. And so the question I'm asking you this morning is, are you interested in more than merely watching, observing, but not engaging? If you're only interested in the observation, then you're probably not a disciple. The disciple wants to know Jesus and be with him. Because they sense that Jesus is more than simply another person, another rabbi, another hope. He is the one who is the Savior, as John the Baptist said. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you want to be with Jesus? 
The second question I have for you comes from verses 40 and 41. In verses 40 and 41, we read that one of those who had heard Jesus speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And Andrew, immediately after hearing who this Jesus was and learning about him, goes to find his brother, Simon is his name, and says to him, we have found the Messiah, and then he brings him to Jesus. Andrew is so struck with Jesus and what he has learned that he goes to his brother Simon and he says, we have found the Messiah. Now I have to be a little careful how loud I say that. I do recall early in ministry when I was speaking really loudly about something. (laughs) A young woman after the service with some young children said, just be careful how loud you talk, you're scaring my children. (laughs) So I don't want to do that. (laughs) But I do want to give this its proper force. You would not say we have found the Messiah, like when I was getting into my car after exercising on Wednesday morning, I looked down and I saw a dime there. And one of my workout partners was getting into his car, he said, hey look, I found a dime. I said it just like that. This would be closer to, we're expecting, or we have great news to share. Only this is even more significant than that. Because do you realize that for generations upon generations, the Israelites have been anticipating the arrival of the Messiah to the point that if you were in Israel at this time, you would have discovered there were many people claiming to be the Messiah. It turns out you had to gather followers and you could tell a variety of people, hey, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one everybody's looking for. Now be honest, doesn't that appeal to you a little bit? To be the answer, it appealed to a lot of people at this point. But Andrew is not saying to his brother, we found another person claiming to be the Messiah. No, Andrew is telling his brother, listen, we have found the Messiah. We have found the final one. This is the one we have all been hoping for. In the Old Testament, kings were set aside as the anointed. So were prophets and priests. They all sort of had the Messiah label. But the sense that the Old Testament gives is that the Messiah, the final Messiah, the hope of Israel, really the hope of all mankind, when he came into the world, he would be more than David, more than Isaiah. He would be more than any priest. He would be a prophet, priest, and king together. And he would be greater and more majestic than any of those ever hoped to be. And that's what Andrew is telling his brother Jesus is. Now you're wondering, what is the question to ask yourself here? If you long to be with Jesus, the response of a disciple is to tell others, I have found him, will you come and see him too? Let me just explain it this way. As you know, I love children. I love my children. They're getting past the age of doing the following, but I still love it when it sometimes happens. You have a little boy or girl, they go outside and they find a frog. And you would swear by the way your child brings that frog into the house, and maybe you don't log frogs in the house. We do. They bring the frog into the house. You would swear this is the most majestic, the most precious. It's the only frog of this sort in the entire history of the world. Look, I found a frog. 
For people who believe in Jesus Christ, they have found something that cannot be contained. I know this from a number of friends who did not grow up as Christians and they became Christians. They went through, what do they call it, the cage stage? Where they can't believe that anyone would not also believe I have found the Messiah. I have found the hope of the world. He has changed my life. I am transformed. How could you not believe with me? Now that may be overdone. But it is a natural part of the Christian life of a follower of Jesus Christ to want to tell others about the Messiah, the hope that we have found. Do you find this desire in your heart as a disciple, to tell others about the Messiah who has come. The third thing that is noted here about a disciple is found in verse 42. A disciple is changed by Jesus. You can see this when it says the next day Jesus decided to go, to, to, go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now you'll notice in the passage that follows... That Jesus is speaking to the second set of these brothers. He is finished speaking in verse 42. I read verse 43 to Simon and Andrew. Simon, it is noted in verse 42, is the brother of Andrew. His name, given name, was Simon. But when Jesus meets him, he calls him immediately Cephas. That is Peter. And you'll notice how John, which was written to Jews and some Gentiles, takes special note to make sure we understand what this means. Not only does he say your name is Cephas, John goes on to say, understand everyone, that means Peter. Why is that so significant? It may seem like a strange thing to do when you meet someone to give them a new name, unless you're a construction worker, I'm guessing, where everybody gets a nickname. But we don't usually rename people. But if you follow the scriptures from the Old Testament following, you will know there's a history to renaming in the Bible, and there's also a future anticipated reality to this renaming. Think of the Old Testament if you're familiar with it. Remember Abram was renamed to Abraham, the father of many nations. Jacob was renamed Israel. Why were these men renamed? They were renamed because God had a particular purpose in their lives. Abram was taken from Ur of the Chaldees, living as an absolute pagan apart from the creator God, and God called him and then renamed him Abraham to become the father of many nations. Jacob was the deceiver. He was the one who literally grasped his brother's heel, which was sort of the symbolic demonstration of his deception. He would trip his brother up over and over, and God chose him and changed him that he became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. For those who would read John's Gospels later, John's Gospel later, they would say to themselves, oh look, Jesus is doing the same thing God did in the Old Testament. He is calling Peter to do something particular and he will change him to do that work. 
When you fast forward in the Gospels, you will note, I'm going to note from the Gospel of Matthew, that later on Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, you are the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and not even the gates of hell shall prevail against it. Peter, if you follow him in the Gospels, was a man who was impulsive. He was a man who denied Jesus, and yet Jesus calls him to be a disciple. This change of name early in the Gospel of John is meant to indicate to the readers and to us the disciples that Jesus calls will be changed by him as they follow him. They are not just called as they are and always will be. No, they are called, and Peter specifically is given a new name, and we see throughout Peter's life and then after even Jesus ascends that Peter is a changed man by his interaction with Jesus. What does this indicate about discipleship? You do not enter into discipleship, my friend, being a disciple of Jesus, expecting to remain the same. You expect you'll be changed, sometimes in ways that are difficult and painful, sometimes wonderful, joyful ways. But no disciple of Jesus ever comes to him to be with him without being with him affecting who they are. And that is also true for us. You are being transformed. The Bible says in the New Testament, from one degree of glory to the next, the grace of God that saves is the grace of God that also changes. And He changes us as we are with our Savior, as we follow Him, and we learn from Him. Which brings me to the third thing I want to, or rather the fourth thing I want to say to you this morning about being a disciple. The disciple wants to be with Jesus. The disciple brings others to know Jesus. And the disciple is being changed by Jesus. Those three things. But typical in John fashion, he saves the best for last. Those three things are all significant parts of being a disciple of Jesus. And you can ask yourself the question, have I seen this Jesus and who he is? Is this true of me as a disciple? But all of that is built on what Jesus says, what the gospel records at the end of this section. The largest section of this chapter, of this, the, the largest portion of this section, I should say, I haven't really explained. It is the interaction between Jesus, Philip, and Nathaniel. Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, this second set of brothers, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's almost identical, more fully expanded to what happens earlier in this account. We found the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in this place, Philip is telling Nathanael, We have found the Messiah. So Nathanael comes to Jesus. And Jesus sees in verse 47, Nathanael coming and says to him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael says to him, How do you know me? That's a great question. You've ever had that experience where you meet someone at a party and they say, Oh, hello, good to see you again. And you say to yourself, I don't know you. How long can you fake it? How long can you try to figure it out? In this case, 
Jesus and Nathanael had never met. It was not as though they had a previous meeting and Nathanael just forgot. No, Jesus sees Nathanael in a way no one has ever seen him before. He says, I saw you under a fig tree. I saw you there. And Nathanael said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. No one can do that except someone who is the Messiah. And here in the Gospel, for the first time, we have the supernatural power of Jesus on display. Something that will be seen over and over and over again. But now listen to this. Here's where I want to draw your attention. Verse 50 says, Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I've said to you, In typical John fashion, the story builds to this point. And you might say, what is he talking about? To understand Jesus's, you will see greater things than these. You need to understand the reference he makes in the last verse about the heavens open and angels ascending and descending. It seems to be taken or drawn from Genesis chapter 28, where Jacob is fleeing from his brother. He has stolen the birthright and he is fleeing away. And as he's fleeing away to go to his uncle, he is in fear for his life. He doesn't know what the future is going to hold. And God brings him in a dream to a place where there is a ladder or maybe a stairway. It's hard to translate exactly what it is going up and down between earth and heaven and angels ascending and descending. And remember what Jacob says when he wakes up? He says, this truly indicates that God is with me. And when I return to this place, I will mark it to say, God is with me. I know that God is with me. Now in this passage, Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, and he's saying to you and I as well, at the very heart of being a disciple is knowing that Jesus is the one through whom we see God himself. Let me explain to you why I'm saying that. Jacob saw the angels ascending and descending between earth and heaven. In Jesus Christ, heaven has come down to earth. That's how the Gospel of John opens. And the Word was with us. He came to tabernacle among us to live with us, to be with us. Jesus is not out there somewhere. Heaven is not removed from us. It is not Jesus simply desiring good things for us. No, Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, do you want to see what the gospel of Jesus Christ, do you want to see who I really am? Here's who I really am. Your Old Testament story about Jacob, your father, is fulfilled in me. I am heaven come down to earth. I'm here. I'm with you. And what you have seen me do, what you've heard me do as I saw you under the fig tree, that's nothing compared to what you will see me do as the Savior of the world. Now do you see what Jesus is saying? It's a powerful thing. And here is the most important thing about being a disciple of Jesus Christ. The other three things I mentioned all fall apart and are relevant apart from this thing that Jesus says to Nathaniel. If you 
do not understand if you do not believe that Jesus is the one who has come from heaven above, God himself, he is the answer to sin, to come down into this world, to be with us, to do the greatest thing imaginable, to deliver us from the power of evil. If you do not see that and know that and believe that, you cannot be a disciple. It simply is not true. You may have noticed how many times in this account some version of C comes up from the very beginning of this passage to the very end of this passage. John uses C or some synonym for C over and over again. Why does he do that? He does that as if to impress upon us by the choice of his language that he wants these disciples to communicate to you in their story the necessity of you seeing Jesus. It is not enough for you this morning to hear these words and say, ah, nice sermon. So glad that you helped me understand that passage. That's good. I'm hoping that's true, especially that it's a good sermon. (laughs) What's really necessary this morning is that you would come to see this Jesus, not just with your eyes, but with your heart. Because here's the reality of life. Every single one of us is a follower of some sort. When I started reading this passage, meditating on it, and creating this sermon, it was Tuesday of this week. In my conclusion, I wrote, every one of us is a follower of something That's the essence of discipleship, being a follower. I happen to follow college football, the Iowa Hawkeyes, and on Tuesday I wrote, my Hawkeyes lost to Michigan. And they did. Maybe it's not college football that you follow. Maybe it's not even sports that you follow. But all of us are built in some way to follow something, to find our meaning in that thing that we follow, to follow after, to aspire to the thing, the person that we follow. It's simply built into us. It's impossible for you to say, I do not follow, I do not long for, there's nothing beyond myself that I need. No, you do. In this passage, Jesus tells us who it is that we're called to follow. It's not college football, first of all. It's not famous people. It's not my parents who I love a great deal. It's none of those things that first and foremost I am called to follow. I am called to see Jesus Christ for all that He is. And then His disciple, as His disciple, to follow Him in the fullness of that call. I'm going to ask you this morning, very simply, do you see this Jesus? And when you see this Jesus, do these four things that this passage reveal, do these four things characterize your life? If it doesn't, if this passage doesn't characterize your life, let me use the language that is found in this morning's sermon title, Jesus 
is calling. And he is calling you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we are grateful this morning for the truth of your word. We want it to be bold, to be clear. But most of all, we want to step out of the way so that the power of the word itself is made clear. I don't know, of course, how each person comes here, what joy or sorrow they bear with them. The people they follow, the things that are valuable or most significant to them. Lord, you know that in a way that I never could. But I also believe that you've brought us here in this moment for a specific purpose. And it is not simply to hear a nice sermon and sing some beautiful songs. But it is as these disciples, these first disciples experienced, it is to come and to see Jesus. And then to become his follower, his disciple, in a way that transforms us. The way that we long, what we say, what we do and gives us the hope and the peace that each one of our hearts long for. Father, would you use what has been said here for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.